Please be seated. There's a slide I'm looking for here, Andrew. If uh, you're not ready for that, to be ready in a bit will be helpful, and I can move on without this. And this is totally my fault, as if anybody needed to hear that, but I forgot to talk to him about that. But I, I would like to draw from Isaiah 25 and verse 8. You could turn there if you wish. I was going to put that on the slide for you here as we'll be looking at Ezra 2 today. But the word of the Lord through Isaiah the prophet, quote, The Lord will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. This is God's long-range plan. This is God's unflinching promise to His people. He will bring death to an end. His promise is to eliminate human sorrow. And He promises a day when His people will no longer be ridiculed, no longer mocked, no longer imprisoned, abused, persecuted, or martyred. That's the long-range plan. But we ask, and I ask you as we come to this text of Scripture today, what assurances can we have that our Lord will keep such promises? Death continues to stalk its prey. The mournful cry of human sorrow continues to echo off the rafters of the universe. And we as God's people are routinely mocked and ridiculed and dismissed while our brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe suffer reproach, discrimination, physical attack, imprisonment, and some are killed. What confidence do we have? Is it reasonable to believe God's promise to one day end our reproach? The faith necessary to sustain such a hope in a fallen world is stimulated by considering the history of God's redemptive works. Faith that God will end our reproach is bolstered by occasional outbreaks of this glorious agenda along the timeline of salvation history. As we see the hand of God so moving, not in an ultimate sense, not in complete fulfillment, but as we see the hand of God moving along the timeline of history, we see that He does keep His promises, that His agenda is on track. And one such exhibit is demonstrated in the return of Israel to the promised land following her exile in Babylon. It's a moment in history we really should get... become comfortable with, be amazed with as we consider what God did there. Now this is ancient history. It takes some work for us to comprehend such days. And it takes some work for us to see the connection between what happened in that ancient context and our own lives. I assure you there are connections. There are very significant and important connections to us where we sit today. Now remember, as the prophets repeatedly warned, God disciplined His idol-worshiping people by means of the invasion of the Babylonian Empire, the destruction of the kingdom of Judah, and then taking these people of God, these Israelites, away to Babylon in exile. As the dust from the heels of Israel's last exile settled on Jerusalem. Any rational unbeliever would conclude that God's people would soon be extinct. What other conclusion could you draw? Look to the north. Sometime earlier when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, Assyrian policy dispersed Israel and virtually forced intermarriage with Gentiles such that her identity was lost. 
That's what's going to happen now. That's what we would conclude. Now in the south, the kingdom of Judah is hauled off to Babylon. It certainly appears that the family God promised would produce Messiah will soon be extinct. But as we know, there is a God in heaven. And in His providence, it just so happens that Babylon's policy includes exile. And Judah is taken from the land for 70 years in fulfillment of God's promise. It includes exile, but Babylon's policy is different than Assyria's. And Babylon's policy allows the Israelites to have an identity in the, in the land of Babylon. To preserve their family roots, to keep them alive and to relate to one another. They're not pressed to intermarry. And so the people of God are kept viable. The people through whom Messiah will be born are protected in some sense in the discipline of the Babylonian captivity. God's hand of discipline fell heavily upon Judah. She was in exile. The promised land lay desolate. Jerusalem and God's temple lay in ruins. But God steers history so as to keep all of His promises. And He reveals to Jeremiah in 25 of Jeremiah This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. This is before the Babylonian army comes in. This is what the prophet says. This will happen. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. It is destroying the nation of Babylon as it existed, as it stood. God's prophecy to Zechariah, the prophet, chapter 1 of Zechariah. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered graciously, and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, for while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster." That is, I was disciplining my children to a place, but they took it further. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. There will be a rebuilding. The Israelites will return to the land. Thus the prophets speak. And as Isaiah prophesies by name 150 years earlier, Cyrus, king of Persia, comes to world dominance, reverses the Babylonian policy. We see how the Assyrian policy ruins the northern nation. The Babylonian policy takes them exile, takes Judah exile, but preserves their identity. And the Persian king who then comes in sends them back according to his policy. Now for all of these kings, all of these empires, Israel is a small place. It's a really important land bridge, but it's not an important people. But in the midst of these massive empires, these massive powers, God orchestrates all that He intends for His people to be disciplined and then restored. And for the line of Messiah to be kept alive, not to be ended. And so Cyrus the Persian permits the Jews to return to the promised land after 70 years. This brings us back to the book of Ezra today. And looking back again at 2 Chronicles as that book ended, 
Cyrus invites the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And 2 Chronicles ends with these rousing words, let him go up, this directional theme to go back up to Jerusalem. This is the call. We see nothing but misery at the end of 2 Chronicles as one king after another violates the will of God, breaks the covenant, takes the people down. But now we hear these rousing words at the end. Let him go up. Let him return to Jerusalem. We come to Ezra chapter 1, and the Lord stirs Cyrus' spirit. Just look through the text as I recall where we've been. Chapter 1 and verse 1, the Lord stirs up the spirit of Cyrus to allow the Israelites to go back. In chapter 1 and verse 3, we find again a reference to going up to Jerusalem. It'd be a good thing to underline if you have a text in front of you. Verse 3 Go up to Jerusalem. Let him go up. There's that theme connecting to the end of 2 Chronicles 36. And then chapter 1 and verse 5, God stirs the spirit of some to go up and return to rebuild the temple. And then in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, just as you skim down through, you see the vessels used to worship God in the temple at Jerusalem are returned to the Israelites. They hold salvation history in their hands in these vessels as they go back, not bringing their idols back to Jerusalem, but bringing these vessels that will aid in the worship of God there. They go back with them. They've been preserved. They've not been melted down. They've not been lost. They've been preserved in the temples of Babylonia And now they're coming back. In chapter 1 and verse 11 of Ezra, notice there again, a good thing to underline again, brought up. The the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Again, this directional term. And as we come to chapter 2, we see again the directional reference. You can't miss this. End of 36 of 2 Chronicles. Verse 3 of Ezra 1. The rebuilding of the house in verse 5. And then here again that direction at the end in verse 11 and 2-1. They came up out of the captivity. It is a stunning fulfillment of prophecy. It is a clear demonstration of the faithfulness of God to His promises. Now the next matter for Ezra is to record the people who return to the land. This is really happening. This is really happening. We're going to put our names down and we're going to be part of this return to the promised land. Discipline is past. God removes much of Judah's reproach by repatriating His people in the promised land and so they rebuild the temple. Now, maybe your eyes have continued to skim. And right here we have the screeching brake sound. Cue that sound. And uh, are you serious? Wait a minute, Miller. Do you see what's coming? We're really going to go through this chapter? Isn't this one of those chapters in the Bible that you skip over? What on earth do all these weird names and numbers have to do with us? Well, if we have a very small world view hedged in by the narrow confines of our own narcissism, maybe not much. If the only thing that matters in life to you that brought you here today is just what's happening after church, that's going to be a challenge. And of course, these kind of texts give pastors apoplexy because they are, yeah, what do you do with that? So I'm reading a commentary that will help me understand it all and give me some real courage to preach this message from Ezra 2. And here's what I read in the best commentary I know of on the book of Ezra. Quote, However fascinating the chapter may be to the antiquarian, it is unlikely that his enthusiasm will ever be shared by more than a few. I'm the antiquarian, undoubtedly. What about you? The interest for us must be enlivened by a perception of the significance of what is happening here. Not only for the ancient peoples of God, but what is happening for us and for our instruction in this record. And I cannot, there's nothing I can possibly do to make these names interesting and these numbers titillating. They're not. 
But getting the big picture of it, we see an amazing account. There's a record of the people of Israel who went back to the land. Their names are recorded, their numbers are recorded, and that, by the way, is a problem. There's, there's all textual kinds of issues and problems with the copying through the years and the like, and it's kind of a mess in some sense. But in the big picture, we see their names. They're counted, they're identified, they came back. The overview to this chapter is given in verse 1. Now, these were the people of the province, I think that means the province of Babylonia, who came up out of the captivity, there again the directional term, of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. That's the point of this chapter, and it's an amazing historical development. We see the leaders of this return in verse 2. They came with Zerubbabel. We know of him as the leader of Israel in the land and the establishment of the temple. Jeshua, the high priest. Nehemiah, not the Nehemiah you might be thinking of, just a common name. Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, not the name you probably think of in the book of Esther. Esther comes after this event and before the return of chapter 7. Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. These are the leaders of the Israelites. Now you see clearly a division, the number of the men of the people of Israel there at the end of verse 2, probably a good place for a verse break, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Now we're dealing not with the leaders, but now with the common people who identify with this movement and come back to Jerusalem. In verse 2 through verse 20, we read their names. At verse 21, just hang on, we'll get there in a moment, but there's a shift in the text. So here's the people that came, the sons of Parosh, 2172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 775, the sons of Pahath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2812, the sons of Elam, 1254, the sons of Zatu, 945, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Bani, 642, the sons of Bebai, 623, the sons of Asgad, 1222, the sons of Adonikam, 666, doesn't mean anything. The sons of Bigvi, 2056. The sons of Adon, 454. The sons of Atter, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashem, 223. The sons of Gibar, 95. Now oh, that's stimulating, isn't it? But what if your name was in it? What if your name was there? I could see people going down through the record and say, that's us, that's our clan, that's our family, that's us, we came back, we came back to the land. Now, at verse 21, there's a shift in the text. And by this point, most American readers have already turned to chapter 3 of Ezra and don't even notice this shift, but notice, you know, verse 21, the sons of Bethlehem. 123, you might say, well, maybe that's like a last name of Boston or something like that. It's not. It's a location. And here's another place where we see the hand of God. The first place mentioned in the land is the place. You would expect those from Jerusalem, those from Shechem or something of the like, but it's those from Bethlehem. This is the spot where Messiah will be born. And what we find in this shift then in verse 21 and following are more place names than they are family names. The, the men of Netophah, 56, 23. The men of, of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Azmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath-Arim, Chephira and Bira, 743. The sons of Ramah, and Geba, 621, again, place names. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 
2.23, even these names we recognize. These are place names. Now, the sons of Nebo, when it says sons, it doesn't necessarily mean children. Uh, because you, it was often said they were sons of the city. It wasn't necessarily a biological term. Like we might say, uh, somebody might say, I'm a, I'm, I'm a son of Texas. We don't think Texas gave them birth, but we know what they're saying is, I'm from Texas. And that's the ideas here. Um, verse uh, 29, the son of Nebo, the sons of Magbish, 156, the sons of the other Elam, 1254, the sons of Harim, 320, the sons of Lod, Lod, Hadid, and Anno, 725, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Sena, 3630, and you can go and see some of these places today. But somehow these people were located with where they lived, where their people had been in the land a generation or more earlier. Clearly at verse 36, there's another division. The priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Immer, 1052, the sons of Pasher, 1247, and the sons of Harim, 1017. There are priests that are mentioned, and you notice their numbers are fairly high. This would make sense because the priests are going back to a reestablished temple, they hope, and they have a job to do. The Levites who help the priests and, and the larger tribal identity within which the priests come. Verse 40, the Levites, the son of Jeshua and Cadmiel, the sons of Hadaviah, I have no idea. Verse 41, the singers, now we have a different division, the sons of Asaph, 128, the sons of the gatekeepers. Here's singers and gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Adder, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai, in all, 139. Another division at verse 43, the temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebana, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shalai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Raiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nekoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasiah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Munim, the sons of Nephesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons, no laughing, <laughs> of he, he, he'd be embarrassed perhaps, but Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Bazluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsa, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Nezia, the sons of Hatifa, temple servants. For those not asleep, hang in there. We have the priests, we have the Levites, we have the temple servants. These temple servants are Hebrew word given ones dedicated to the temple service. King David had organized this group to fulfill probably menial tasks for the Levites. So the Levites help the priests and these temple servants help the Levites as they serve at the temple. Some of these names are foreign, perhaps indicating that they hailed from conquered nations defeated by one of the kings of Judah. But what is clear is even with these temple servants, they have kept their identity alive in Babylon. And they know themselves to be those who come alongside and help the Levites who are really going to need help because you see the Levitical numbers, the numbers of the Levites are very low. It's one of the indications, just a quick sideline and commercial break, but it's one of the indications of the integrity of the text. Because if somebody was just playing with the text, you wouldn't have less Levites than priests. Because the Levites must give a tenth of their income to support the priests. So you want to have and would have typically the Levites are a tribe, the priests are within the tribe. You have much more, many more Levites supporting the priests. The reality is there were more priests than Levites. These people coming back is not going to all go according to plan. There's going to be some challenges. 
At verse 55, we find a different division, and that's the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasapharath, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachereth Hazebaim, and the sons of Ami. Hasapharath means scribe, and Pachereth Hazebaim means gazelle keeper or killer. So possibly this is a person that's a hunter for whatever authorities are there in the, in the, in the land. But again, a different division that is then numbered here. All the temple servants and sons of Solomon put together were 392. Again, just a dry list, but they're getting organized for there to be another temple. The temple will be built. At verse 59, we find the return of some whose ancestry was in doubt. And this, again, is very significant. The following were those who came up from Tel Mela, that's a place, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Aden, and Immer, place names, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And it matters. Some returnees were apparently identified by their hometowns, some by their families, but some had no such identity. They could not prove their father's houses. They could not prove their descent. Now, that isn't significant to us today, but it was there when you're considering moving toward through bloodlines to the Messiah. And so it's significant that these individuals are identified to those who cannot prove their identity, but they come with Israel. They are, verse 60, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652, also the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hazaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name, matriarchal, rather than patriarchal, and he's always identified, and it was probably because of some inheritance that he took his wife's name rather than his father's name. Very unusual, so they always identify that so you know what's going on there. Verse 62, they sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found in the genealogies. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Unclean doesn't mean dirty morally, it just means they're not able to participate in the priesthood because they can't prove that they are part of it. They can come, and they can identify with God's people. 63, the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food, that is in con context of the temple worship, until there should be a priest, probably a high priest, to consult Urim and Thummim. Now it's just getting really out of line. What on earth is Urim and Thummim? It is a bit strange, and we lose touch with it, but it's some sort of thing that was in a sort of fold on the vest of the high priest. He would draw out of that fold these whatever rocks or sticks or something, and God, in His grace and mercy to His people, permitted an answer to questions. A yes, a no, or no answer. We have no idea how this worked. All we know is the Israelites continue to refer to the Urim and the Thummim, and it allows them to hear a word from God. And we might foolishly stop and say, I really wish I had Urim and Thummim, that I could ask God any question I wanted, and He'd say yes, no, or no answer. Because all I seem to get is no answer. But let's stop and seriously say how blessed we are to have the full Word of God. Not to be limited to a yes and a no, but to know all of the promises of God revealed in His Word. And so they had to wait until this mysterious means of determining whether they were or were not priests could be found, put back into practice. It seems to indicate that it was there, but that it required the high priest to use it. And so they were waiting on these sacred lots. Finally, we have a tally 
in verse 64. The whole assembly together was 42,360, a number larger than what's been listed. So apparently not listing women and children. We don't know. Perhaps there's others that aren't listed. There's a lot that we don't know about the numbers. But verse 65, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. That's not the singers at the temple. That's singers that evidences wealthy people. They hired singers to entertain. So there are singers mentioned earlier that worked at the temple, but there are these singers who are just hired for wealthy returnees, indicating a measure of wealth had been achieved by at least some in Babylon, enough to bring singers along with them. And there was, there was no um, internet, there's no iPod, iPad, whatever you play your music on, it wasn't there. There's no radio. It was, you bring the singer with you. And if you want to hear somebody better than yourself, then you hire them. There were horses, 736. There were mules, 245. There were camels, 435. And their donkeys were 6,720. So uh, this is pack animals, work animals, to get them there to help them with the temple. Verse 68, some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 7,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments, prepared for in anticipation of the rebuilding of the temple. Now this certainly proves applicable to us directly. The goal is to reestablish the prescribed worship of God by rebuilding the temple. What an amazing opportunity for Israel to serve the purposes of God and to exalt His name there. And they say, we want to be part of this. So they give of their wealth and they leave the confines of safe Babylon to come back to say that God's temple must be built. You notice here that it is free will giving. It's not a tax. It's not coerced. But God stirred the hearts of some to leave the comforts of Babylon and equally stirred the hearts of some to use their wealth to begin to provide for the reestablishment of the temple. Now put yourself back in their sandals and robes. Leaving Babylon's not an easy call. More on that in a moment. The giving of your wealth to this temple that may never be built. There's going to be a lot of opposition. Many challenges that will have to be overcome. How do I know my money's going to be wisely invested? But this is how God works. Not through taxes but through free will offerings of His people who are stirred in heart to say, I want to be part of what God is doing. And in this case, it was quite clear this was the doing of God. The devotion of the returnees was indicated by the fact that they saw their money not as an idol to serve, but as a means by which to serve God. It was a tool in their hands. The summary statement in verse 70, we'll come back to these thoughts in just a moment, but is this, now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. And thus the chapter closes. We've gotten a lot of bodies moved. From Babylonia to Israel, Jerusalem particularly. They've made the journey. Now, that journey, we don't know, is all at one time here. There could have been different waves of journey. We certainly find a different wave in chapter 7, so don't, don't fill in too many blanks there as to how this looked. But the discipline is over. Israel's reproach has been lifted to a large degree. She was a captured, exiled nation whose temple was in ruins and whose land was largely unoccupied. The promised land? What a joke. There isn't anybody there. There's a few people keeping 
the crops. There's nothing going on there. There's no nation there. Israel is dead. They're gone. But no, now they're back. And there is no one that can argue that they are truly, through bloodlines, the people chosen by God, the people of Messiah. Against all human expectation, they had been replanted in the promised land. And we can picture back in Babylon, the prophet Daniel on his knees praying for this return, trusting that what God had promised he was able to perform. No one gave Israel any chance of this happening. But through policy, through the grace of God, according to the sovereign God who runs heaven and earth, they're back. And they're back in some numbers to establish this place again. What does it say to us? Does it have anything at all to do with us? I think the connections are immense. And I wish for another hour to work them out. We'll not take it, but briefly. Consider these connections. I, I, I almost despair of how to even draw them out and how to say it, but I think we can start with this main concept. God is a promise-keeping God whose historical agenda is to finally vindicate His people and end their long night of suffering. That's not pie in the sky. That's God's declaration to His people. This is what I'm up to. And here and there, there's an outbreaking to show that God keeps His promises, that He does indeed live this way among us. Ezra 2, this glorious agenda, flashes momentarily and shows to us, reveals to us again that God never lies. He keeps His promises. He fulfills all of His prophecies. So back to Isaiah 25, when He says... I will swallow up death forever. He will do it. And I see that in Ezra 2 in part, among many other places. He will do it. When he says, I will wipe every tear from their eyes, he will do it. When he says, I will remove the reproach of my people, he will do it. And there's going to be a day for every one of us, if you're not in the midst of it right now, where your faith needs this. You're going to come back someday in some trial at some place. And you're going to need the word of the Lord. The promise of God. He does it. He keeps his word. How can I know these promises are for me? The rock-solid faithfulness of God to His promises blossoms into a host of connections between the ancient Israelites and we who have become by birthright the followers of Messiah. For those who have been grafted into the vine of God's saving plan, these promises are sure and amen in Christ for us. They're the promises on which we stand, and they are promises that transform everything we face in this life. There's a dirty, dusty, tired-out group of people that could stand in heaven today to speak to us and say, God keeps His promises. We went back to Jerusalem. And a host of connections work out from that connection to God's people in this promise-keeping God. And I would say then, secondly, our most important undertaking, in light of point one, our most un important undertaking, your most important undertaking in life and death, is to identify as a member of God's people. There's a list in this chapter. There's people who are signed on to the list and identified with the plan of God. Now Ezra 2, there's no doubt, it's a rather primitive display of this truth. But it is an important indicator of our need to identify with God's people. To say that I am one of them is displayed to us here in this primitive sense. 
we find careful, meticulous consideration of whether one was clearly rooted to the people of God. Their Hebraic pedigree was all important, but there were also Gentiles who had come to identify with the people of God through faith. The key was to trust God's saving plan at that time, whatever He had revealed. And the key today is to do the same thing. The same agenda, although the picture is more clearly developed. So the return to the promised land, as we think about it theologically, that return keeps the messianic hope alive. It keeps the people of God through whom Messiah will be born viable. It's alive, it's identifiable, and it's positioned such that Bethlehem was in operation again. Today, we relate to God distinctly because of the progress of salvation, of God's plan. We're not Israelites returning to Jerusalem. But we identify now with Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that identification for you and for me is of utmost importance. Are you on the list? Could I say it that crassly? Are you on the list? Are you united to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question today. And in this day, as Israelites were considering going back to the land, there's undoubtedly many people around them that said, don't worry about that, it's not a big deal. We can live as God's people in this land. We don't, you don't have to go back. Don't worry about it. Why are you getting so worked up about this? And that's just how people today talk when it comes to identifying with Christ. It's not a big deal. There's all kinds of different religions. Just do whatever works for you. Don't worry about whether you're his child or not. God, everybody's God's child. Same story, same words, just a different perspective. How do I know I'm identified with Christ? Maybe you ask that question today. I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've been in Christian churches. I've related to God in some ways. I've done some good things. I've read some of the Bible. But I don't know if I'm identified with Jesus Christ. In ways that really are more parallel than we might think, it starts where Israel is here, seeing themselves as a child of God under discipline. And that starts in our day as we identify with Messiah, of recognizing that I am a sinner who breaks God's law. I am not identified with God through Jesus Christ because I'm a good person or because I've done certain things. I am in my very being one who breaks the law of God, one who lies one who is self-centered, who lusts, who hangs on to massive numbers of idols that I put ahead of God. I've got to come to recognize that first. And to recognize, secondly, that God rejoices to forgive sins and restore people to fellowship with Him. This is the plan that He works out. I come then to find, thirdly, that Jesus died as God's sacrificial lamb to pay the price of my sin. That God has found a way to provide for me a way of forgiveness. A way where what separates me from identifying with God, my sin, is covered, cleansed, and removed. Not from anything that I've done, but from what Christ has accomplished. And then... I come to recognize and trust in His death in my place. Trust in His resurrection from the dead, the basis by which death will finally be swallowed up as He promises. But I come to recognize that Jesus Christ literally defeated death. And I put my trust and my confidence in that. When you so identify with Christ and your soul is thrilled to know your name is graven on God's heart, then you can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ. And having come to trust Christ as Savior, it may take time for us to fully recognize that place, but for those who are truly identified with Him, we can say, for me to live is Christ. 
My identity is so bound up in the one who died for me and rose from the dead, whose promises are for my eternal presence with God, that I can say to live is Christ. I don't say I'm perfect. I don't say I've earned my way to heaven. I say Christ is my life. I identify with what he has done and what he has provided. And when that is true, then I think we can say number three, identifying with Christ and trusting in his promises liberates us from idols and dependence on fragile securities that will eventually shatter us. This is why we read Matthew 6 this morning. What does Jesus say? Let it go. Let the money thing go. The idolatry the absolute necessity of having wealth and things. Let it go. Don't hold on to money as an idol. Don't hold on to ease as an idol. And here we come back in connection with the Israelites leaving Babylon. I mean, if we could somehow get into their place, we have to recognize it was really pretty easy in Babylon. Wealth was being made there by the Israelites. Their identity was being uh, recognized. And they were able to work within their own system, their own people. And, and they, were, they were doing well. And they were protected now by the most powerful nation on the earth. Things were pretty good there. When the issue came... When the, when the decree was issued that they could go up to Jerusalem, they had to consider leaving their comfort. They had to consider using their financial resources not in an idolatrous, selfish way, but in a way that would advance the cause of Christ. Idolatry, the ease Our love for ease and our love for wealth is so natural to all of us. But when I identify with Christ who is my life, Christ supersedes all of those idols. And when that's the case, I take risk. I serve Him in ways that challenge my ease and challenge my rest in financial security. I willingly risk life and limb for Christ and give away money for the cause of a kingdom that is not of this world. Those without faith see such a life orientation as twisted, as demented, as maybe just a way of of, of building church buildings. But those who know Christ see it as an exhilarating, liberating, scary but strangely soul-satisfying approach to life. I don't hold on to anything in this world because I'm holding on to and I'm being held on to by the King of kings and Lord of lords whose promise has secured my future forever. I don't have to rest in the small things of this life, and put my hope and my dependence upon them. And in this, we're always fighting, certainly. But I love these people. I'd want to say that I would have been with them. I hope I would. I'd want to say I'm not going to be one of those ones that stays back in Babylon and says, you know, I got it nice here. I'm going to keep earning money, live as easy a life as I can. And that thing with the temple and rebuilding and the reestablishment of God's people and all, I I mean, good for those people. I hope I would have been one of those people walking across the Fertile Crescent and saying, I wonder what it looks like. I wonder when we're going to get there. Dad, are we almost there? (laughs) It was a long walk. But I'd want to believe that my identity with the people of God and the purposes of God superseded the ease and the wealth that I left behind. And on some level in this world, as the followers of Christ, that's where we all are. are. We are on our way to another land. Do I live my life as if I'm going somewhere else? 
Or do I live my life as if this is it? And everybody that looks at me says, there's a wise person who's getting everything they can get, getting everything lined up as well as possible, living the easiest life they can possibly live. Do they see that in the way that I live my life? Or do they say, there's somebody who's clearly living for something else? They're going somewhere else. And where we're going is to an eternity with the Lord. Where we're headed is the death of death and the death of sorrow and the death of shame and the isolation that we face in this world of absolute fellowship with Jesus Christ who rules from Jerusalem's throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's where I'm going. That's my identity. That changes the way that I live every day of my life. I'm not one who stands back and just applauds I'm one who goes, who goes into this world as a representative of Christ, weighed down by no one's idols, but serving Christ crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. That's my homeland. That's my Savior. That's my hope in the promises of God. Will you join me? In living like that, I'm not. I'm not as I should. But let's edify, build up, encourage, and help each other to live that way in faithfulness. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we need one another's help, and ultimately we need your help. I pray that you would grant it. You would help us to see life for what it really is. There are some here who are clinging to their own life, they think that loving self, trusting self, is the best policy. And I pray that you would show them today that it's the path to destruction and heartache and emptiness. That it will not bring them to the eternal land. I pray for all of us who know Christ and would say that He is my life. He is my identity. I pray that we would learn to walk in faithfulness and fellowship and may we be challenged by these who did so and encouraged because Jesus left the splendor and the wealth of heaven to become poor for our sake that we then would live a life of devotion and faithfulness, not to earn anything, but to walk in fellowship with you until our hopes are realized, your promises are realized in our true home. Aid us to that end, we pray, through Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me and take just a few moments and in the quietness of